like you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8, one of the popular passages that people read and refer to in the Gospel of John. We're all familiar with it. We hear it often. Jesus said in verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him and to those Gentiles and believers in Shelbyville, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 36, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now I want to title the message tonight in the form of a question so you can ponder it yourself. And the question is, when are we free? When are we free? Now you notice that he mentions being set free by Jesus in verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you really are free. If you continue in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom is liberty. That means you're no longer in bondage to something or somebody or some habit or some part of your life. You're free. It's like being ransomed or released from something you couldn't get out from under. You've been made free. We take words like this for granted quite often. We assume that this is so because, well, we are professing Christians. And therefore, we're professing Christians and we're free. We're not slaves anymore. We've been loosed. We've been set free. We've been redeemed and so forth. Well, and the question is, when are we free? I notice verse 32, the popular verse. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. Because we think of knowing, I speak of it a lot, talk about it a lot, because it's a premium word. It has to do with everything. You can't believe something you don't know. You can't walk in a way you don't know. If you don't know something, then you're missing something if it's spiritual. The reason God put teachers in the church is so people could know something. God sent the Holy Spirit to the church to teach the church. We have to learn something. If we don't learn something, we will remain in bondage to something we shouldn't be in bondage to. Jesus sent the word to deliver us. In fact, he said that in Proverbs 11. He said, you be delivered through knowledge. So we have to learn something. We never know too much. As Christians, we will never have too much spiritual insight or too much knowledge of the Word of God. We'll never overload anything. People who know a little bit think we know a lot. And as the more we read the Bible, the more we realize how little we actually know. But the little bit we've learned has been wonderful. It not only has worked in our lives, at least in my life for 40 plus years, but it's also working for other people. But it's interesting that it doesn't work because you read it. It doesn't work because you memorize it. It doesn't work because you study it. Because you can do all of that and not really know what you're supposed to know. Know is a relational word. It has to do with a connection, a relationship. 
The Bible says that Adam knew his wife. Now that word knew has a sexual connotation because having known her, she conceived and bore Cain or Abel and all of her children. But the word know there obviously implies a relationship. When the Bible says Adam knew Eve, knowing Eve didn't mean that Adam recognized her in a crowd. Oh yeah, that's, uh, uh, I know her name, uh, that's Eve. No man who is married, properly married, says, uh, what's your name again? <laughs> Doesn't work like that. See, we say that about people that we're not connected like that with. But when you know somebody, you have a relationship. In John 8, 32, he said, you shall know the truth. There'll be a connection between you and the truth. I don't know how to put all this in exactly the right words, but there is a way that God draws you into favor with him, causing his word to shine in your heart like a light. And the light brings gladness and joy plus information, obviously. You begin to see with your eyes what God says with his mouth. You know, with the eyes we behold and so forth. And you begin to see things you've never seen before. Like the psalmist said, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. And we begin to see it. God doesn't do that to everybody, but he's done it to us. He showed us things that makes the heart glad because we've seen something we never saw before. And we're drawn to it. We want a little bit more of that. We want a lot more of that. You get connected to something like that and you're drawn to it. You cherish it because of what it does in your life and the power that's behind it. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 7, to some of those who thought they were following him. They were obviously church-going charismatics. I mean, they prophesied, they cast out demons, and they worked miracles. In a spirit-filled arena, they would call it. Remember what he said to them? I never knew you. Which, being a relational word, as I would call it a relational word, Jesus was saying, we never had a connection. The doors were open to you to come and not just to get something, not just to get gifts and power, uh, ministry, prestige, fame, a lot of money, and a following. That's not why you come to the Lord. You come to the Lord because He draws you to Him, and the main part of this is fellowship. It's spending time with Him and let Him show you things to come and bless you. But a lot of people get just enough of it. They see how it works, and they begin to take the spiritual things and spread it around and do a lot of things about it. And they can preach about the word. They study the word. I've known people who have read commentaries, taken notes, outlined books, listened to tapes and outlined tapes and put them in a file. I mean, spent hours just indulging themselves in the word of God. There's no evidence of any of it changing their life. Now you wonder if they really know the Lord. They certainly know about him. It's like, what'd you say your name was now? I mean, they don't really know him. They know about him. It's an impersonal, superficial knowledge. It's not a knowledge that changes the life. It kind of comes in one ear. Man analyzes it. Then he, if he pigeonholes it and categorizes it and puts it in some slot, but it never seems to capture his heart. And therefore, his knowledge is merely academic. It's just like in school. We learn things in the Bible. 
so we could take a test and get a good grade. But it, interestingly enough, after you graduate from college, you don't remember even the name of the class you took that you got an A in. It was all merely for getting a grade. It didn't change your life. When we learn about God that way, when it's all just memorizing the book and see how many verses I can memorize or how many, you know, frontwards and backwards I talk about memorizing the books and learning a verse a day and all of that. If that doesn't become your life, then your knowledge is superficial because it doesn't change your life. You still fall apart, still act ugly, you still lie and cheat and steal and cuss and throw fits, stomp your foot. And it's like everything that God said that should suppress that and defeat that and overcome that stuff is pushed out of the way and you just do it anyway. And you could say about people like that, you could say about things of that sort, I don't think they really know the Lord. And people would just, don't know the Lord? You ever hear him quote the Bible? I don't care what they quote. When I look at a person's life, is there evidence in somebody's life that they're godlike? Is it a spiritual life you're looking at, or is it a religious person? See, modern religion today has taken spiritual principles. Knowing what people like and respond to, they take spiritual principles and they make big events out of it. Youth rallies, for example, big youth meetings, you know, acquire the fires, that one of the things, I don't know anything about it, but I've gotten folders with all the groups that are going to be singing and boy, the marvelous things that God is going to do and there's going to be a time we're going to take over the world, blah, 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 blah. Big churches hire these ministries, youth ministries to come in and they, they look cool and they do cool things. And then churches are realizing today now that their congregation is getting older and older and all these kids that were so alive have quit going to church. You know why? Because the word didn't do anything. It didn't change anything. It just gave them something to do and they got all excited about getting together and being this or that and dancing to the same music we can't dance to in the world but we can dance to at youth meeting. And they begin to realize that there's nothing here that's drawing me closer to God because they still fall in the same old habits, fall in the same old sins, weaknesses, nothing changes. In fact, I just had a guy the other day tell me about this church is a pretty good sized church and one of the members began to complain about the fact that we don't have any young people. <laughs> people look here and they want to know who is our youth director, who's the director of our youth? They say, well, all he's ever called is the Holy Spirit. I don't think he has any other name. We're trying to treat everybody the same. You're young, you're 15, 13, 7, or 70. If you're a Christian, easy. If you're a Christian, not yet. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. And what God says here, he says to one, he says to all of us, if we're born again, isn't that right? So we don't treat people like you're not ready yet for the big church. We're going to give you a little church in the back. Y'all go back there and do that. But the big church is out here. No, we're one church. Not everybody agrees with that. It doesn't matter to me because I have watched in my lifetime what works and I've heard what doesn't work. And we're not taking chances. I'm just saying, look, there's one thing, one thing, uno thing that God says is necessary. And it's not movies and pop and chips and some groovy music. It's the word of God. 
and the Word of God is nothing but a Bible on a table if the contents don't affect your life. It's just a book. And one day, if it's just a book, you'll walk away from it too. But when these words become, as the Bible speaks, words of life, remember the little song we sing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Remember vacation Bible school? You sang it every morning, that and onward Christian soldiers. Well, you didn't go. But anyway, this is the way it works. God draws us out of a place where we're so familiar with death and dying and a solutionless world. And he draws us to him. And he begins to teach us his way. And by the power of his spirit, what he says at this time makes sense, has meaning, and we cherish it. That's why we keep going. That's why we don't have any 20-minute sermons. I looked and looked and looked for a 20-minute sermon. I can't find one. I've looked and looked. I don't think I've ever had one. I've had people walk out because I preached too long. It's just that God says, I want you to know. The Greek word know is a word which implies a relationship with the knower, that's us, and with what is known, that would be God, which knowledge has a powerful effect upon the knower. If it doesn't, then you're missing something. If you preach to empty ears, you get empty solutions, you get empty lives. But when you get some hunger, somebody's hungry for the word. When you get hungry for it, you really want it, you press in for it because Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Now, the question is, when are we free? Well, maybe from what are we free? Take, for example, first of all, number one, are we free from the dominion of sin? Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, sin shall not have dominion over you. Romans 6 and verse 6, from the dominion of sin. If you're a Christian, this is the battleground. This is where we fight. Because just because you surrendered verbally your life to God doesn't mean the devil lets go of you. Now, he lets go in the sense that he no longer has a right to your life because Jesus came to set you free. But he always believes he can come back in and get in the room. Remember these words about sin? Isaiah 59, 2 said, it's your sins that separate between you and God. And your iniquities have hidden his face from you that he will not hear. John 9, 31 says, now we know that God heareth not sinners. Sin's a terrible thing. It keeps you from realizing the things that, that are yours. It's like a blindness that comes upon people. Sin and the devil are synonymous. So the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. It's not like you can't be devoured once you come to the Lord. You're a target now. You can be devoured. Jesus warned Peter. He said, you know, the devil has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. Because this is when a lot of people give up and turn around and go back. Remember the sower to seed? When he became persecuted because of the word, he left. 
The rich young ruler, he couldn't pay the price. He turned around and, and left. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Well, that shouldn't be so with us. That should not be our testimony. Our weekly, daily, monthly struggle should not be with the same sin, the same weakness. In fact, we have no excuses for any of our sins, whatever we do. Look at verse 6 and follow. Romans 6. That our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Who isn't tempted? Who doesn't have some enticement in your life? Now again, we came out of many different backgrounds here, many different lifestyles and weaknesses. All over the room, we all had something that still tries to come back and haunt us. I don't care if it's smoking, drinking, or worse. Now, he said we should not obey those temptations. God doesn't keep us from being tempted. He doesn't say to the devil, no, 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 you can't tempt this one anymore. In fact, sometimes he lets the devil come in. He controls how much the devil's allowed to do, doesn't he? No temptation is taken you but such as is common to man, but he doesn't prevent you from continually proving your intentions to follow and serve the Lord. He doesn't keep you from doing that. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. A lot of activities that people go to does bring forth sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, a classic verse. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, you're under grace. God is on our side. We do not have to be defeated by yesterday's weaknesses, though we're all confronted with them. Some of the same old haunting failures of my past Occasionally they come back, they have a flashback. You've got to recognize that if I have been set free from that, and there's this urge to kind of do that, I don't have to do it. Because now that I'm set free, I can deal with it. I can deal with this now. An alcoholic may walk away from that bottle once or twice, but he can't stay away from it because there's a devil involved here. But if you've been delivered from alcohol, for example, or porno, whatever it is that controls people. And that thing is staring at you and looking at you. All you have to say is, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. I will not do it. And your body says, oh, but you wanted it. My body is dead to sin. I do not have to obey the lust of my flesh. The only thing that I have that the devil can use is my flesh. That's the only thing I got. You crucify your flesh and you're eliminating all the areas that he can come at you. That's right. A thing called self, flesh, carnality. That's what the devil, if he can keep that alive, he can still have a play in your life. And God has delivered you little by little. 
He's cleansing us little by little. You know if you're cleansed or not when you face something that used to control you and you can turn around and walk away from it. If you don't walk away from it, you're still bound. Remember that sermon we mentioned Sunday about Isaiah 61? Jesus' first sermon, he said three things in there. He said he came to set the captives free, to loose the prisoners, prison doors, and to set free those that are bound. That's what we all were. We were sold under sin. We were controlled by sin. You couldn't keep your mouth shut if you tried to. And yet you go to bed a lot of times and think, why did I say that? Why do I keep, oh man, I feel so bad. And you'll do it again tomorrow because you're a slave to that. When God saves you, he forgave you. He forgave you of all that sinful way of your life. But you know, this thing is still socked into your hard drive. That ain't a sin. It's a sin when it's released and it controls so here you are having been mastered by some weakness your whole life, and here comes the devil. And he comes at that area again. Oh, you're saved now, huh? Boom, here he comes. But now, see, you say this. I refuse to look at that. I will not go there. I refuse to open my mouth and say what I want to say. My talker is spinning wheels on the inside, just wanting to blast away, and I'm not going to do it. I am not going to do it. I'm going to put a watch before my mouth, I'm going to guard the door of my lips, lest I sin. And you begin to take your authority. And you begin to deal with sin. And you begin to put sin in its rightful place. You put it under your feet. Look at Romans 8 and verse 2. Here's why. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Are you free from the dominion of sin in your life? Do you keep repenting each day for the same thing over and over? You don't have to. You shouldn't be doing that. If you're growing in the Lord, you're putting the old things behind you. Doesn't he say old things are passed away? They try to come back, but you've got to keep them back. Secondly, are you free from weaknesses and defeat? Things like fear, uncertainty of tomorrow. Maybe you grew up under fearful circumstances. Maybe you've seen fearful things happen in your life or in your family. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe you were robbed. Maybe it was molestation or rape or some very ugly thing that happened to you once. Maybe you have a fear of men or maybe a fear of women or a fear of crowds or lots of fears. You're a good person. You're free from all your sins of your past, but there are things that bother you. Maybe it's just a fear of failure. Maybe you're afraid because of the economy that you're going to lose something. Those are natural fears. I'm not making this up. These are natural things that people are fearful of. People think like this. Or maybe they're afraid in Christian circles, they're afraid to trust the Lord. Because you've got this tempter saying, well, what if it doesn't work? What if this thing comes back on you? What if you, in trusting the Lord, let it go too far and then it can't be fixed? What if you died? What if your child died? What if you lost everything? How in the world would you explain that to your friends or parents? Don't you think, and then here comes this 
wishy-washy theology of today. Well, you know, God knows you're just, he, he doesn't expect you to do everything right all the time because you can't. So you resign yourself to weakness. If you listen to a lot of preachers, I've heard a few on the radio, I mean, just for a short time because I can't listen a long time. I don't think I'd even listen to myself, but I listen to some of these people on there and the next thing you know, there's no way I'm ever going to be holy. There's no way I'm going to be without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. There's no way I can overcome fears and weaknesses and triumph daily in Christ. There's no way you can live by the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way you can turn the other cheek. I mean, you can't do that because some of this end time liberal theology that creeps into charismatic circles as much as anything. Charismatics can be as goofy as any of them. It comes in and there's this idea that we just love people. Don't worry about it. God may want to heal you. He may not. He may want to deliver you. He may not. I mean, it, it, you know, come on. After all, there's more important things in life than that. And therefore, you don't have to try. It doesn't matter if you fail. And you resign yourself to weaknesses. Look in Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. How is it that you're free? Here's a good verse on why you are free and when he made you free. Chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Does your Bible say that? Then can we be strong? If we can be strong, there's a lot more verses in, you know this, the joy of the Lord is your strength and so forth. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Then if the Bible declares boldly, often that we're strong in the Lord, then we should not allow ourselves to talk weakness. We should not dismiss our failures. We've all made mistakes. I'm not saying you're mistake free. I'm just saying if you made a mistake, and God might call it a sin. He that knoweth to do good, doeth it not. Get up. Repent. Make your peace with the Lord. Grab hold of that plow. Keep going. As long as God is dealing with you about your sin and as long as God is convicting you, you're all right. It's when you no longer have any desire to do anything spiritual that you're in really in deep trouble. But you don't have to be weak. You can be strong. The Bible gives us many verses on being strong in the Lord. It's how we overcome. We overcome because we've learned how to apply spiritual truths to our life. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 19. We quote this about twice a week. That's how many times we meet. Now, this is what he prayed in verse 18, that God would show you to the church. He said, I pray he'll show you this. What is exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he begins to describe the kind of power he's talking about. The power that overcame the best shot the devil had. Death. Now he's given that to you. Look in chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. What do you ask for? What do you think? What is it that troubles, bothers, inhibits you? Let me give you a verse. Here it is. Now unto him, that's God who is able. Who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think according 
2. This is why that's possible. According to the power that is at work in the preacher. What does it say? The power that worketh in us. Now I'm asking you this. Is there power working in you? Is there heavenly power, assistance, enablements from the Almighty tonight, right now, as we stand here at five minutes after eight, Eastern Standard Time? Is there working tonight in your life power from God, which is more than you need, exceeding abundantly beyond and above? Now, that being true, where's the problem? What's the weakness? You say, well, I, I just keep being old. Okay, let me give you some advice. Take what he said, take it to prayer and say, Lord, here's my problem. It's not hid from you. Now, you're, you're not going to tell God anything you don't know. But you got to get it out of your chest because you got to open your mouth and let go of it. So you go to God and you say, here's my problem. I don't know what everybody else is, but this is mine. I don't want it, and I believe I've been delivered from it. And I'm confessing with my mouth that I am free from this problem, and I will not yield to it. I'm just not going to do it. Sometimes you've got to make a covenant with yourself and with God. I shared once before a man who had a problem with pornography one day at an airport, realized it, realized the traveling, well-known speaker. And he realized that he had a problem with pornography. He would never admit it because that would affect his ministry. He didn't want to do that. Well, he wouldn't tell everybody anyway. Until God one day confronted him and he said, I know what you're doing. I know the weakness of your life. And one day when you get caught doing this, it's going to affect a lot of people because it's going to be known. And a lot of people who thought you really had something to say, they're really going to question whether it was right in the first place. You're going to cause a lot of people to stumble and fall because of this weakness that you got here. God didn't stop it. God was watching. He gave us the word. He gave us a chance to prove that we're going to trust him just like he did Adam. He gave us the truth. Told us the way to go. He didn't prevent a law from confronting you, a law that can bring sin. He just simply gave you the right to make a choice. He gave you the freedom to do that. You do that to your kids, don't you? When you give your kids a key to the car, what if they wrecked the car? Did you allow them to wreck? What if they got drunk and wrecked? Did you allow them to drink? Why they drink then? You allowed them to drive. But God simply says, now I've told you the way I want you to go. You know what your weakness is, and so there you go. Start your walk. I'm not going to make it easy on you. I'm not going to take away the feelings, the temptation. I'm not going to take any of that away from you. I'm going to let you walk that way and face that. But before you start your walk, let me tell you the way it works. It'll never be bigger than you are. You're never alone. I will keep you, but I will not make your decision for you. You'll have to prove that you want me in your life by doing what I want. That makes me your Lord. Now, you've got to do that. Here's your chance. Here's your chance. You want to run around with a crowd that you shouldn't run around with? You want to be Miss Whoever? God may have another way of looking at that, but you've got a decision to make. 
You got to make up your mind whether you want to be accepted by the world or accepted by the Lord. And you have been weak all your life about being persecuted. If I stand up and do what I know I should, I'm not going to have any friends at all. Make your mind up. Be the friend of God or the friend of the world. Jesus said, if you're his, the world's going to hate you. You've got a decision to make. He hands you the keys to the car. I want you to drive this way, this fast, be home at this hour, bang. That's what I want. That's my will. Now, you're going to drive, and I'm going to find out just exactly where me and you are in life. Amen. That's what parents do. Here's the keys. Be home 10 o'clock. Give me the keys back. No, 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 I'll take them. Okay, 10 o'clock. The breathalyzer test at the door. We're going to find out how I'm going to relate to you. Now, what if God dealt with us that way? Maybe he does. I'm not going to make it your way. I'm going to make it my way and see if you really want to give it all up, what you got, so you can do it the way I want you to do it. And we're going to find out because you're going to get to make choices. And all your old weaknesses, and I just, I just want to be in his arms. No, that ain't right. I just, I just, I just, all you gisting, you're going to have to give it up. Are you free from that stuff? You're going to be controlled by it, well, then you'll have a testimony. Who wants to say, whatever you got, I want it? They're not going to say that. I can do all things through Christ. Look how weak we have been as parents, those of us that have children. Look how many times we've been weak. Look how many times we should have said no. If we'd have said no, we could have spared a youngster from a lot of pain that they're going to experience in their life when they get married. Because we've let them develop something in their life that's going to be a rude awakening to some young man or some young lady. Because as parents, we just wanted to spare ourselves of all this yaggity yak given into them. And that's terrible parenting. Look how many times this happened. You know, that's a weakness. A lot of tough men are weak. Yeah, you might grow up and beat people up growing up. Then they get married and they go, Daughter says, well, I just don't know why I can't wear this. Meow, it's okay. <laughs> so she goes out, gets in trouble. I'm in trouble. Meow. <laughs> Parent. We do that Christianity too. We got other things to do on church night or church morning. We got other things that are more pressing. That's times you miss. I know that. But I'm just saying there's times that we don't give it our best shot. You know why? Because we have got a habit of giving in. I mean, we just habitually do it, and nobody's ever told us we can't. Now, the preacher fusses that. I don't know why he does, but he fusses us about that stuff, but we still do it. Well, then nothing you're hearing is changing your life. We're speaking the word, but guess what? Nobody's home. You're supposed to say that. Thirdly, we ask the question, when are you free? Are you free to refute and overcome the devil? You should be. Been talking about some of his temptations and so forth. Back in Ephesians again, chapter 1 and verse 21. 
The Bible says we're set down in heavenly places at the end of verse 20. Then verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Are you in the church? Then you have been seated in heavenly places. The devil has literally judicially and fully been defeated. The master of people's souls who held in sway mankind was defeated in Colossians 2 at the cross where he made a show of all of that openly and triumphed over all the devil has ever done by the cross. Now that's a legal settled fact. It does not have to be done anymore. Nobody has to say, when's God going to do something with the devil? He already has. He already has. When God raised Jesus from the grave, it was made sure and steadfast. Many people have died. But when he raised him from the dead, it signaled that this was a just and holy man, truly a lamb without spot, blemish, or any such thing, that he was a redeemer that we've been free from all the devil did. He no longer has a right to have dominion over us because Jesus who died for us, the Bible says we died with him. He died for us, so we died, didn't we? Judicially, we died. And we can walk through life now saying, the devil has no more rights to me. I say this sometime, maybe you wouldn't take it this far, but I say the devil's the author of sickness. He has no right to make me sick. He has no rights. I may give him rights, through sin, because the Bible tells us that he has devices. Remember that? We're to be aware of his devices. And you can open the door in, the, in Ephesians 4, I think it's verse 27, and he can come in. Give no place to the devil. That means you can. And if you give place to him, then you can confess all you want to, but it, it doesn't change. Nothing changes. People get discouraged, they give up and quit because they haven't been well taught. Or if they have been taught, they didn't pay attention, they don't get it. But when the devil comes in and does his stuff, I can say to him, you have no right to lay on me what God laid on Jesus. For Jesus took my place, bore away all my sicknesses and all of my pains, and by his stripes... I was, not need to be or going to be, I was healed. Past tense. And he has triumphed over my foe. The author of sickness and disease has for me been defeated. I don't have to have that. And people are running around, they're scared of it because the devil's still making people sick. They fear, they're talking about it. I think of how many years ago I started getting applications for insurance and all oh, the cheap costs. You can have this kind of insurance, that kind of insurance and health costs are going to. I bought a shredder. I don't know how many I've shredded. I haven't counted, but I bet I've shredded two or three hundred of those things just in the last four or five years. I get them all the time. And I refuse. I refuse to let the devil talk to me or talk me into fear that God who took care of me this long and now isn't going to finish taking care of me at the end of my life. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. 
We're not talking about common sense here. We're talking about spiritual sense. God who started a good work will finish it and he will finish it good. With long life, he will what? Now the devil doesn't talk like that. People, people that are Christians can talk like that because that's what the Bible said. God said he will finish the work he started. With long life, he'll satisfy me. I have a word for that. I learned to say that. I hide those words in my heart and now the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the way it works. And the devil comes along like he did to Eve. He says, yea, hath God said. And he puts a question mark where God puts a period. Just to gain access to a person's mind to get you to thinking that perhaps it is not like the Bible says. Maybe we're being misled in the way we're being taught. Therefore, there could be an element of error here that God never intended for us to think that lofty and maybe we're being misled. A lot of people leave over that. They never prove that. They just think that. They think that might be true, so they act like it's true. Sometimes you have to tell people, don't believe a word I say. You want to come and listen? Fine. But you can't believe it and make it true because I said it. You better find out for yourself if that's true. If you're a Christian, you have an anointing in you. There's a teacher resident in your heart that gives a yea or a nay to what you hear. We call it discernment. There's something in you that does not have to depend on man. If you were on an island by yourself, you've still got the teacher there. And his role and function in you now is to make clear what you hear right or wrong. You may not understand it. Go search the scriptures. The group in the Bible did that. Search the scriptures. See if what you heard is right. Well, I forgot what you said. Well, take a note. What's a pencil cost? You can find them on the street, can't you? What would a notebook or a Dollar Tree cost? <laughs> you can take a little notebook and if you didn't pay too much for your Bible, you just stick it in the back, make it bow out. Or you can buy these big yellow sheets that stick in your Bible like that and make great sermon notes. And you can stick it in there. And you can actually, if you try, you can take a note. <laughs> it really isn't hard. I've done it. And I know it works. And the purpose of that note was so you could go back when you get away from the rest of the sermon, away from everybody else. You can say, now, now he said this. Uh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I agree with that. Well... He told you not to believe it because he said it. Find out if it's true. Well, where do I start? Well, you got a concordance. What's that? Well, you need one. Do you have a topical Bible? It's a collection of scripture under topics, salvation or justification or faith or hope. And they list a lot of scriptures under that one title. It's called a topical Bible. And that's really a great aid for study. Or you get a Thompson chain and have it all together in one time. But anyway, it's not my responsibility to be your conscience. Say amen. amen. Your conscience is formed by truth. But truth must be verified by that connection you have with God. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's the one who connects. He's the one who makes glad the heart. He's the one who opens the eyes to behold wondrous things from the law. Not me, it's he. 
And he's the one back where we started. He's the one who opens our eyes to see that truly the devil was defeated. He still makes a lot of noises. He still hollers and yells and he still threatens you and he can make chill bumps come and sweat pop out and the pain sometimes, you know, when you're tested that way, you think, oh man, this is gonna, oh boy. But God inside of you is a greater force than anything you'll ever face in this world, anything. The one who made the world has chosen to live inside of you to take his power that he gives to you so that you can overcome all things, that be defeated by nothing, zero. You do not have to be defeated. And the devil knows that, and if Christians know that, they'll begin to fight a little bit harder and a little bit better than they used to fight. Go back to Ephesians 6 again, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Do we have that? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Does your Bible say something like that? Listen, I'm going to find out how much you know. You know what the verse says. Do you know it by experience? Is your knowledge, your relational knowledge, is it experiential knowledge? Does your relationship with God lead you to experiencing what the Bible says so that, that it's a living, alive, powerful, indwelling, life-controlling word? It's supposed to be. The word becomes life. Doesn't the Bible call the word life? My son, attend to my words, Proverbs 4. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those that find them. Not everybody's looking for it. We take for granted we've got it, but some people look for it, and they're the ones that find it. It becomes real. Praise God, they say. Well, others say, what are you so excited about? Because I'm extreme. Put your finger where you are, and we'll come back to Ephesians 6 and go to Deuteronomy, the other end. Go to the other side. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. Listen to this. Old Testament. And he saith unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your, uh, your, uh, how do you pronounce that word? Cha, cha, cha. Anyway, you command them to observe. Does it say command? Oh, man, we shouldn't have gone back there. But anyway, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. Now notice this is the emphasis now that he puts on the word. For it is not a useless or vain thing for you because it is your life. This is the only thing God gives you that he is willing to watch over to perform. Not your good intentions, not your happy hour, not all the, the sacrifice you make, but the word of God. That's why I said, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen one thing that should never be taken from her, and only one thing is necessary. And man lives not by bread alone, but by every word of God. This is the way God made it to be. And the devil knows that if people that he's after get this word in their heart, he can't control them anymore. But if he can get them to listen to something else that's not the word, but a kind of the word, but it has no pop to it, he knows he can keep controlling their lives and go so far as to say for you to avoid those people. 
If they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it, well, you know, they start talking that way, you withdraw from them because that's a deadly leaven. It'll leaven the whole lump. So we said, it is your life, and notice through this thing, you shall prolong your days in the land. What do you do with health insurance then? You don't need it. You got a assurance. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And having done all to stand. Verse 13, able to withstand. Verse 16, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able. God keeps giving us instructions about all the things that that we're so afraid of, all the devil this and the devil that. The Bible said, resist the devil, he'll flee from you in James 4, 7. Resist the devil, he'll flee. Well, I don't know. Yes, you do know. Well, I want you to lay hands. I ain't laying hands on nothing. You resist the devil first. Put your finger there again then. Go to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, verse 9. A hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but notice, but through knowledge, the just won't do that. You know why they won't do that? Because they got some light. God's spoken to them. They resist the temptation to speak. They resist the temptation to do, to act, or go there, aware that, or prance around like they resist it. Why? Because you got this voice in your heart called your conscience. This truth that God gives you is settled into your heart and the Holy Spirit establishes it as truth. And when you hear something that isn't right, he brings it down, every thought captive, to this truth. And then you got that decision to make. This is when you get handed keys to the car. What are you going to do now? Are you going to justify your sin and say it anyway or are you going to crucify it? It's your chance to prove who's boss in your life. Back to Ephesians 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Your adversary, the devil, Peter wrote, is like a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he can devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. That's 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, and he will flee from you. Quit running around if you do. I don't know that any of you do this. Quit running around trying to get somebody to pray for you. Find out what you believe and take it to God, okay? Quit looking for a prayer line, a prayer list, or somewhere else to go. Take what God said, put it before you. You shall know the truth. The truth will make you free, and then stand on it. What things ever you desire when you pray, believe you have received it, and you shall get it. Just take a stand. Let God be the one you call on. Dial heaven. It ain't 911. It's on your knees with an honest and sincere heart. Fourthly, when are we free? How are we free? You know what I'm free to do? I'm free to be blessed. I am free to be blessed. Jesus said the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy, but he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Exceedingly above all that you ask or think. There were a number of years in my life in putting this to practice. It didn't happen over a weekend. Kids are growing up. God blessed me in a lot of ways. 
and there was always a way for it to fly away. It'd come in, but it always went out. Always had more than I needed, but something always came up with is more than I thought. And God was able to keep it coming in. There were times I would think, my mind, you know, I hear this thought. Well, you know, God's blessed you a lot. You know, easy come, easy go, they say. You reckon you'll ever have enough to keep a little bit of it to maybe, if it ever rains, you can go somewhere, you know, rainy day. And I remember the time or two, I think, well, probably not, because I think he's just going to let me have enough to see what it's like to have a little something and then have a reason to get rid of all of it. I've got rid of a bunch. And I think he will let you have some of it to keep. And then when he does, I've learned this, whenever he does give you a bunch to keep, you don't care if you have it or not. Because something is bigger and something is more blessed than having something that you've got here whereby you don't have to trust the Lord. He's shown you how to live with him. Shown you how that he will supply all your need. But he will also bless you with abundance. Remember when King David died and they were building the big temple? King David, by today's standards, gave like a billion and a half dollars. That was out of his own pocket. Kingin was pretty good to him. Maybe we ought to do a little kinging. I mean, he did pretty good. He was blessed. Jehoshaphat just set himself to learn who the God of David was. And while he was just exploring, probably had the priests around him teaching him, and he was engulfed in all of this, and he loved it so much, he had his priests go out and teach all the people these things. Oh, this is so good. And the Bible says while he was doing this, his enemies... Crossed the borders, bringing him thousands of camels and donkeys and cattle and sheep and goats and gold. And they just brought it to him. He didn't fight a battle, didn't have to take anybody's spoil. He was seeking God and God brought all of his favor in his life. And Abraham, like Hezekiah, had abundance beyond measure. Not only was David able to give a billion and a half dollars, but the elders of Israel gave almost twice that much. Somebody was doing pretty good. Kingan was good. Eldrin was pretty good too, apparently, because they were doing good. It seemed like God just singled out a nation that was responding to him. What if it was a church in Shelbyville that just began to set their affections on things above and began to desire spiritual life? And while they're desiring and not worrying about the economy or tomorrow and where am I going to get, just seeking God and God just poured out his blessing. Remember the night that fellow prophesied to me in the Christian church? He's up there preaching and I'm unemployed at the time. I'm not ministering, just very little here and there, a little bit. And here came this fancy fellow in the church. And he sang a while and he looked at me and he said, Brother, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. He said, do you minister? I said, yeah, a little. He said, I just had a vision of you. He said, I saw God. He said, this is amazing what I saw. He said, I saw God open the windows of heaven, and he started pouring a blessing out upon you that you couldn't even contain it. Of course, I'm sitting there going, well, that's fine. You got any more of them? I mean, it was so far-fetched to me at the time, I thought, well, I'm believing for, you know, I guess something like that. I mean, the abundant life is, doesn't have to be enormous. 
I mean, I'm living the abundant life right now as I stand here, but it would be somebody else to try and live doing what they do and what I got, they'd be broke. But it was just in my own realm. You know what, through the years I've thought about that and then every now and I remind myself, he has poured out a blessing on my family, me and my wife, till literally there is nothing, we, I like to go to Israel, but other than that, there is nothing, I don't know anything I want. See something that I want, I mean, you couldn't buy me a birthday present because if I saw it, I'd just order it and I'd have it. As long as it's reasonable, you know what I mean? Well, let's get him one of them. You better find out if he's got one first. So the kids just send cards. I like that. I mean, he's all I need. I'm blessed. But shouldn't we all be blessed? John wrote in his little epistle, 3 John, he said to the church, he said, you are my reason for joy. It's the good to see you doing well. And to see you thriving and flourishing and, and wrestling with those weaknesses that used to dominate you, you just resigned to. And seeing you overcome these things and seeing you harness yourself to just take them one day at a time and walking with God and trusting Him and believing for His best and let it come into your life. And not striving with the wind and not crying about this, but just holding on and resisting and overcoming. That's what I like. Turn to James chapter 1. You see, if you're going to be blessed, you need some faith. Verse 25, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, we're talking about being free. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, that's when you get the keys to the car. He being not a forgetful here, but one who drives away, he was told to drive. He, in the end, will be blessed in whatever he does. You like that? Blessed indeed. Blessed in your marriage, in your business, as a human being, in the church. Blessed. Shouldn't we all be blessed? We really, really should. Lastly. I'm free to worship God. When before I was saved, before my sins were forgiven, I could not have raised my hands unless you all did too. I wasn't going to pioneer this in the church I was in. I think I did. But there's just some things, I don't care how right they were in the Bible, I was not going to do it. But when you begin to experience more and more release from the old ways, from the old stagnant Christian church, rigid way of doing a Baptist or whatever it is, you begin to let yourself be governed by the Lord and not some program. You begin to worship God. It's the most natural thing in the world to do is to worship God who made heaven and earth. If you have a relationship with him, if you know him, how could you know God and not worship him. How could you? How could you know who he is and what he's done and not worship him? Me in tonight by saying this, what keeps you from doing that? What keeps you from worship? Is it a living water? Is it a swamp? Are you turned to the left or to the right? Or are we going straight ahead?
Are you free? Are you free tonight? Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we desire you to minister to us, as we desire to be in touch with you, to know by experience that secret place of the Most High, as we experience abiding and what that means of hearing your word and it becomes living and alive, greatly to be desired, tasting and seeing that it's good. We need that, Lord. All of us here need that. I ask you in the name of Jesus to minister to us as needy people here tonight. Grant us that work of your Holy Spirit that even before we get out of here tonight, that we will in some way respond to you, either with a confession, with our worship, or with a determination to do better. Find us faithful, O oh God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? I was a slave in a foreign
Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. God is good.